invite you all to uh, open up your Bibles. Specifically, we're going to be taking a look once again at Ephesians 1, 15 and verses 15 through 18. Paul has been addressing the Ephesian congregation, a congregation, as you know, that he planted himself. He had uh, great helpers in that work, people like Priscilla and Aquila. And although he was no longer there, he is still deeply, um, deeply concerned with their growth. He's like a farmer who, uh, is, although he has retired and is no longer farming in a particular field, nonetheless is very, very concerned that the, uh, the crops do well. And I don't have my mic on. Thank you for letting me know. Um, and so he is keeping in touch with them, uh, and it, obviously he is relating to them that he is doing all that he can for them, and the most important thing that he can do, as we'll see, is pray. Now, it had been my intention originally to preach through section, or rather verse 23 of verse 1, but then um, I realized that I was going to be preaching for about an hour and 10 minutes if I did all of that, and I decided I wasn't going to do that to you, so I uh, decided to cut it back to verse 18. Uh, and give uh, a more full um, exposition of the way in which um, it, the, uh, he was encouraging them to grow in grace and in which he was praying for them. So do keep your Bibles open because we're going to be taking a look at this particular section. We'll take a look at some of the words and the way that he expresses himself. As I said, this is going to be a, a more deeper exposition, God willing, of, um, of these particular verses than we do in the mornings. But as I said, you're the evening crew, so uh, you're, you're, you're down for it, right? So anyway. All right, let's go ahead and uh, pray first, though, before we open up the Word of God. God, our Father, Lord, as we'll hear in a few moments, your apostle expressing, we need the light of your Spirit within us to illuminate the Word, to make it understandable to us. Without it, our understandings will remain veiled. I, I won't be able to explain this to your people. It'll be, uh, it'll be a closed book still. And I pray, Lord, that therefore you would, you would be with us and that you would help us to understand. Help me to exposit the wonderful words of your apostle who was so caught up with thinking of what is to come, the inheritance that, the, that lays before the saints, that he was almost at a loss for words. He uses hyperbole, Lord, here in a way that he doesn't normally do because he's striving to use earthly language to express heavenly truths and realities that we can barely even conceive of. So help us, O oh Lord, to also be caught up with this, thinking of what is to come, thinking of where we are going and what Christ has accomplished for us. And O oh Lord, we pray these things through the power of your Son and the Spirit that he's given us. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 15 through 18. Therefore I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will last forever. As I said, uh, Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, has a desire to see and hear that they are still growing. Now, one of the things I want to draw your attention to is uh, verse 15 begins with a particular word. What does it begin with? Who can tell me? 
therefore, or dia in the, uh, in the Greek. And there's an old saying, whenever you see therefore in the text, you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? Okay, it is a connector that, uh, in which Paul moves from one thought to another. You'll see it often in his writing. Uh, it's, uh, it's sometimes expressed in other translations as for this reason. In other words, I've told you something of immense importance, and now I'm building on that and saying for this reason, now you need to understand these things. Or I'm going to make an application having spoken about words of truth and, and the way things are. Now I begin to pivot towards how this should affect us and what we should do. So he's building on his prior comments in verses 13 and 14. In him also you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You have been sealed. You've been given the Holy Spirit. And therefore, then he goes on and he builds on, after I heard of your faith. Now, a lot of people looking at this, after I heard of your faith, um, he, he uh, might not have uh, had the Ephesians only in mind, that it may have been a circular that was intended for all of the churches in the region, including ones that he hadn't been to. Um, but I, I don't believe that's the case. I believe that um, it, it's not implying that he's only heard of their faith. He hadn't seen it. Uh, you'll notice that in some cases he writes and he uh, says after he's, he's been apart from a a particular group of people or an individual even, that he is very concerned or that he is very happy to hear of how they are progressing, how well they're doing. So for instance, in the case of Philemon, his beloved fellow laborer, a man who he knew very, very well and whom he was sending, you remember, Anasimus back to, uh, he uses the same kind of words in Philemon 1.4 and 1.5. He says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. So Paul is expressing, I have received news about your faith and how it is growing and how it is uh, something that is living and powerful, how the work that I began there, how I, I planted, Apollos watered, and now God is giving the growth there, how that is going so very well. Uh, and he says in this, I am, I am filled with joy that you Gentile Christians are being built up in the faith, that you have this inheritance, that you have been sealed with the promise. He's building all of that. Now, what had he heard reports about? Well, he tells us what he'd heard reports about in verse 15. Your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Two things, faith in the Lord Jesus. Pistis, ice Christu. Um, it's faith into Jesus. They have put their faith and their trust in Christ. They've seen uh, the Savior for the glorious Lord that he is, and they have put their full trust in him. They not only believe the gospel message, they are resting upon it. A man by the name of uh, Fisher put together a wonderful catechism. It builds on, I'm sure most of you have seen the shorter catechism. Fisher's catechism builds on the answers within the catechism itself. And so he deals with the, uh, the question uh, things like faith in more depth. And uh, question 86 in Fisher's Catechism is, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And the answer he gives is, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. 
It is not merely a knowledge that is being spoken of here by Paul. The thing that he is amazed about in terms of the faith of these saints or happy about or ecstatic over is the fact that they are resting upon him, that they're trusting in him. And this has affected their entire life, not just the way that they live, but also their happiness, their contentment, the way that they go about treating other people, their worship and so on. It is truly in Christ. Now, we all know of people, or you probably have met people who have uh, kind of a historical faith, as it was once uh, called. They, you have an understanding of the, uh, the faith in, the, in terms of the, uh, you know, if you were to ask what the gospel is, the person could, could explain to you, well, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, he went on to become uh, the savior of mankind by dying on the cross. But the great question that you might want to ask this person is, but what is that to you? How does that affect you? Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Son of God. But what is Jesus to you? That's the question that we have to deal with. Are you united to Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you in union with him? What does Paul's heart good? And any pastor who loves his congregation is to see that his people are believing in Christ, that they're trusting in Christ, that they love Christ, and they have that living, vital union that uh, we is so needful in him. And this produces something else you'll notice uh, immediately. He builds on this in verse 15. After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints... We remember, for instance, that in his epistle, 1 John, 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. This is one of the things that we see or we should see in the saints who are truly united to Christ that the love of God that has been put in their hearts also results in a love for one another. The idea of a congregation where people are constantly biting and tearing at one another, gossiping about one another. If they, uh, you have grudges and you hate one another, you have cliques at war, and I've actually seen congregations where this happens, there's something wrong in that particular congregation. There's a problem of faith. Do you really believe? We are to believe all believers, I believe, we are to love all believers because the love of Christ has been put within us. We should love our fellow Christians no matter where we are. It's one of the things that uh, I, I so appreciated about traveling to Uganda and teaching there. Uh, very different culture, 8,000 miles away. I mean, there were a few, it's funny, there were you know, a few echoes of, uh, of, of the old British um, colonial culture and, and things like that, so I could still get tea and biscuits and, and stuff like that. But what was doing my heart good was not you know, maybe a few cultural affinities here and there, but what did my heart really good was the fact that we were brothers and sisters in Christ, and we loved one another. We may have been very different in our background and so on, but yet we were one in Christ. And so it was my, my joy and my pleasure to be there and to teach. And I hope that they got something out of it uh, as we did so. Uh, and wherever we go in the world, we need to remember we are one in Christ. We have that essential oneness, and therefore that should result in love 
for one another. Paul sees this. He sees his love, the love for the saints. And not just a said love. Not just a love you brother, love you man, you know, and then maybe uh, I'll pray for you. But rather the reaching out, the doing things for people, the taking care of them when they're sick, carrying food to them when they're hungry, uh, uh, <laughs> doing things like members of this church did on Saturday, helping one another move in spite of the difficulties and so on. Still loving one another in a living and powerful way. But also, the, we can think of, you know, the, I bring them a casserole, I cut their lawn, those, those works of service, and they're very important. But there's also another dynamic that's uh, part of that, being one in Christ, isn't there? There's that stirring one another up to love and good works. Doing something that's sometimes more difficult, as a matter of fact, which is admonishing one another calling one another you know, out when there's something wrong going on in their life, being uh, connected to one another in such a way that when we don't see somebody in the midst of our assembly, that it feels wrong, like a stone is missing from the living temple. And so we, we call them and we find out how we're doing. How are you doing? Why am I seeing you, brother? Or when there seems to be a spiritual struggle going on, going to them, listening to them, and giving them then good counsel, bringing them to the scriptures and pointing them in the right direction. That's the kind of love that the saints should have for one another. It's the kind of love that we would see organically in a, in a well-ordered family, in a family where the members love one another. We should love our brothers and sisters. Note this, kids, you should love your brothers and sisters, not bite at them and tear at them and so on. So Paul sees this, and it causes him to have thanksgiving in his heart. So what does it stir him up to? It stirs him up to prayer. First, what does he do? He thanks God because he knows I didn't do this. Now, please note this. I could preach, and I'm not going to do so, obviously, from now till... It is a possibility that could happen. I could preach now until the return of Christ, but without the power of the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't affect any of you. It might, you know, put some intellectual tidbits in your mind that you hadn't thought about or stuff like that, or perhaps affect your emotions one way or another, but there wouldn't be any real change. For change to occur, it requires that God do something within you, accompanying the preaching of the word, either in your effectual calling when you're brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your heart is changed, or in your sanctification when you are stirred up and, and brought in the right direction. Well, he, he is full of thanks because he understands it's God who's done this in these people. And so he prays for them and he prays about them and he gives thanksgiving for their salvation. And then he also intercedes. Now he notes also who he prays to first. He says he prays to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, he's praying to the same God whose work Christ came to do, whose will Christ came to do, the will of the Father, the one who sent Jesus Christ into the world, the, uh, the Father who sent the Son in order to redeem us, the one whom Christ constantly testified about and the one to whom he has returned. And then he calls him also the Father of glory. Father of glory is a, is a Hebrew idiom for the glorious Father. And it's Paul saying that he is both the source and the possessor of all glory. If there is any glory in the Christian faith, it's not us. It is God who is the source. It is God to whom we should give all glory and honor and blessing and from whom we receive glory. Because we remember, and sometimes we forget this, you and I who believe in the Lord are destined for glory. 
It's one of the reasons why we can say, and this is something that Paul's going to be building on constantly throughout Ephesians, that the tribulations, the afflictions that we go through in this life, although they may be hard and they may be lasting at times, yet they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed within us, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Nothing by comparison, light and momentary. Tribulations that may make us, bring us almost to despair. We'll look back on, he tells us, in glory when we stand with the Lamb and that multitude and we will think they were nothing compared to this, nothing at all. And we hold on to that. We walk by faith knowing that that day is coming because the Father of glory has destined you for glory. That's something very important. So what does he ask the glorious God for? Well, he makes three petitions on behalf of the saints. The first is that he says he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Uh, he asks for the spirit of wisdom, the pneuma sophias. And what does this mean? Um, well, it speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in what we call illuminating us. Now, you all know what illumination means under normal circumstances. For instance, if we were to turn all the lights off, we would lose illumination in the room and things would get very dark. We are illuminated by these lights. But what we're talking about when we talk about the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit within us is bringing light. Light is associated in the word of God constantly with truth and goodness. God is the giver of light. And he brings light not just to us externally, but light within the soul. One of the wonderful things, of course, uh, that we see in the Bible is that it begins with light, doesn't it? The very first thing that God calls into existence, speaks into existence in Genesis, is light. Let there be light. And then who is the light of our minds? Who enlightens us? And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light of God. So he wants them to have enlightenment from the Holy Spirit, who is the author of wisdom. Now, what is, what is the Psalms and what do the Psalms and Proverbs tell us is the beginning of wisdom. It is the fear of the Lord. And by fear is an awe and a respect. It's an understanding of who God is and who we are and what our connection is to him. And that's something that only comes when the heart has been changed and filled by God's Holy Spirit. This is the illuminating wisdom that Paul is praying they would have. We spoke of Solomon's wisdom earlier today, but who gave Solomon his wisdom? God. He asked God for wisdom, and he gave it to him by filling him with his spirit, illuminating him. Um, So, for instance, Paul and we'll talk about this at the end as well, he distinguishes between the wisdom of this age, worldly wisdom, which is not really wisdom at all, and true godly wisdom. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 2.6, he speaks of wisdom amongst those who are growing in grace. And he says, however, we speak wisdom. This is 1 Corinthians 2.6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. 
But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Paul is saying, if you want to understand the gospel... If you want to know who God is, if you want to truly fear him, you need his spirit dwelling within you. You need his illuminating grace. That's why it's so useless for us to attempt to teach people who haven't been regenerated to be Christians, to act like Christians. When they're living in darkness, how can they act like people living in light? When their desires, when their heart, when, when they don't have that ability to see yet. And so Paul prays, I want you to have the light of the Spirit within you, illuminating you, so you understand the things of God, so you understand God better. Now, when he speaks of revelation here, it's not he's speaking of, uh, of future events, that God is going to... I'm, I'm hoping that God will uh, unfold to you all of the things that are going to happen. Now, God did give prophets and apostles, like John in the book of Revelation of foretaste and of foreknowledge of what was to happen, showed them things that were to certainly to occur. And in the time in which Paul was occurring, there were prophets in the church who were unfolding future events and so on. But that's not what he's talking about. It is, he's talking about something here that all believers need and for which they should pray. And it is that they would understand the excellence of the things of God that they would have a fuller understanding of the things of God, that they, through spiritual enlightenment, would be taught by God. And that's something that we see in the New Testament era, isn't it? That the Lord himself would be the teacher of his people through his word and through his spirit. And the spirit's function, therefore, is to reveal to believers spiritual mysteries, things that worldly people simply can't understand, that the world sees. You remember the Greeks, when they heard about the resurrection, they said this is foolishness. Because in Greek philosophy, the body is bad. It's a prison house for the soul. So the idea that the body would be raised up again and the spirit would be reunited to it, no, that's bad. And then for the Jews, the idea that the Messiah would have been put to death, would have become a curse for us on the tree. No, that too was a stumbling block. No, no, this, this man cannot have been accursed and yet our savior at the same time, not understanding that if we are to have any righteousness, it must come from Christ. If we are to have any forgiveness, it must come from his being willing to lay down his life for us. And so it was a stumbling block. It went against their, their wisdom, their worldly wisdom. But he wants them to have epignosis, which is uh, an accurate, certain knowledge, an experimental knowledge as well. I was talking before, you remember, about not just knowing about God. And that's the most important thing to remember here. It is just not knowing about God is enough. It is necessary that we know God, that we be in union with God. And that's something that only the Holy Spirit 
can affect. So he prays that the Holy Spirit will dwell in them, that he would be the author of divine wisdom in them, the revealer of the things of God in them. Now, that doesn't come entirely disconnected from the means of grace. It's not like they're going to grow in the knowledge of God, never having heard the scriptures opened up, never having heard uh, preaching and so on. But without the scriptures, uh, rather, without the Holy Spirit within them, then the scriptures are going to remain darkened to them. So that's the first thing that he uh, prays for, that the, the Holy Spirit would illuminate them inwardly. And then in uh, verse 18, I love this phrase. Um, he says here, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. In the old Vulgate Latin edition, it was the eyes of your heart. Such a, <clears throat> such a wonderful phrase. I have prayed, I don't know about you guys, but I have prayed, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Help me to see aright. Not just the vision that we have through our eyes of the ability to see. Take away my spiritual blindness, Lord. Take away my dullness, my heaviness. Allow me to understand these things. Give me that illumination inwardly that I need that will allow me to see. Give me the spirit of wisdom. And the effect of the spirit of wisdom within us will be to illuminate us. So that we'll see things as they really are. You remember we were talking this morning about how at the heart of wisdom is seeing the world really as it is and not through delusions and so on. Or merely walking by sight and not by faith. There's a graphic example of that idea of seeing things as they really are in the, in the spiritual world that was uh, um, given in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 6 when uh, Elisha's servant, you remember, they're at Dothan. And he sees the army of Syria surrounding them. They've come to capture Elisha. And he's, he's panicked. Look at all these soldiers. We're done for. And then Elisha says, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He opened his eyes to see the spiritual truth. And then he knew that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Oh, that we could only see the spiritual verities, that we could understand that we live every day in the presence of God. And that uh, is often my prayer for myself. Open my eyes, Lord, to see your wonders. And my prayer for you as well, that the Lord would open your eyes. That's what Paul wanted for his congregation, even though he wasn't with them in Ephesus any longer. He wanted them to be able to see by faith. He was a man who was able to look beyond the prison cell he was writing from and see all the way to glory. He wants them to have that ability as well, that particular Christian superpower that comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Superman may be able to see through lead, but we should be able to see to eternity with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Rather, it's Superman can't see through lead, isn't it? Okay, well, I got it wrong. Moving on, number three. He prays that they might know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, when he talks about the calling, he's not talking about their, their vocation, you know, their particular call in the world in, uh, in terms of being cobblers and thing, uh, things like that. He's talking about the effectual call of God by the Spirit, your calling. In the way that, for instance, Christ, you remember, he went to each one of the apostles and he said, follow me. He comes to Matthew and Matthew is sitting at the tax collector's booth and he says, follow me. And Matthew leaves the money, he leaves that position that he had in the Roman establishment, and he gets up and he follows 
Christ. That is our calling. That's a picture of our effectual calling. Christ says follow, and we do. And to what? What are we following Christ to? Well, we're following him in a certain hope. Now, there's a way that we use hope, and there's a way that the Bible uses hope, particularly the New Testament of Paul. When you and I say hope, we are usually speaking of something that we are not certain is going to occur. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow so we're able to go to the fair. I hope he gets better. I hope that dog doesn't chase us. I hope, you know, that kind of thing. You hope for these things, but there's no certainty. The hope that he speaks of here is something that, although it's not seen at present, is certain. If you're in Christ, your hope of glory is absolutely certain. It is sealed, you remember. You've already received the down payment. It is a hope that will absolutely be uh, realized. It's an inheritance. You don't have the fullness of it right now, but you are going to have it. It is already yours, although it's not yet in your possession. And that's one of the great, uh, you know, the, the, the great um, phrases of the Reformed faith, that we, all, we live in this life already, but not yet. We already have the down payment. We already have the salvation. We have not yet entered into the fullness of our salvation. We have not yet obtained the glory, but we know it's coming. And why? Because God is the author. The author of glory is not going to withhold these things for us. He who did not hold back his son, who was the, th- the, the, the person he loved most, but gave him for all of us, how is he going to withhold from us the riches of our inheritance? If Christ has died for you, then how can you not receive all of these things? How can you not receive the glory that he has vouchsafed? And he says, you know, as he finishes up, one of the great blessings that they have received is that they were once afar off. They were not part of the covenant community. He's given them this inheritance that was was once something that they were strangers to. They were foreigners. Now they are fellow citizens with the saints. They are hagioi, the holy ones, the peculiar people of God set apart for him. He's put his hand upon them and has said, these are mine. And nothing can ever take you out of the hand of God once he has claimed you for himself. So this, brothers and sisters, what he's trying to communicate to them is I pray that you're able to not, you know, it's not a prayer. Oh, I hope they get this inheritance. I'm not sure. It's an, I hope they understand. Open their eyes, Lord, to see all of the glorious things that they have in you. And why is this so important? Because we live here on earth in a fallen world and often we act as though we're going to spend eternity on a fallen, in this fallen world. We, we respond pragmatically. We despair when the circumstances in this world are against us. I have to tell you, of course they're going to be against you. First, you're living in a world that is fallen, that's red in tooth and claw, that's filled with, with the wages of sin. And then if you're a follower of Christ, did you think he was joking when he said that if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well? The servant's not greater than his master. He wasn't joking when he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But did he go on to say, so fear and despair and oh, be pulling up your hair constantly and thinking it's all over, game over, we're lost, no, no, no. 
Is that how we're supposed to live? Wretches. <laughs> I wake up in the morning in this awful world and it's just never going to get... No, that's not the way we're supposed to live. It's the way we sometimes act though, isn't it? We become in that moment though practical atheists. We forget our inheritance. We forget our glory. We forget who we are. We forget we're princes royal in that moment that we've been vouchsafed an inheritance in heaven that's far greater than anything that the world can bestow upon people. King Charles spent most of his life as Prince Charles. And in his 70s, he finally became King Charles. A massive exaltation. I know he is, he's enjoying himself tremendously, but that is nothing. I mean this, nothing compared to what is in store for the saints. You too are but waiting to come into the fullness of your inheritance. And therefore, should we ever be in a state of despair? Should the Christian ever get to the point where he considers making an end of himself because of the circumstances against him? Should we think that we have to sin in order the good might come? And the answer is no. Paul desperately wants them to remember this. You may be persecuted. You may be treated like the offscourings of the earth. You may be in a situation where you're not doing as well as, as you know, the, the other Gentiles or Jews within Ephesus. And yet, what is that compared to what is in store? You have no idea of the glorious inheritance that you have. And so, what did he do? He's, he's trying constantly to tell them, hey, 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 don't, don't despise your Christian calling. Don't dislike the duties of the Christian life. Don't despair when things go against you. You have nothing to fear. Now, uh, Charles Hodge deals with the issue of, didn't they already possess these things already? I mean, they were saved. If they had the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, didn't they have these things? Well, he says, yes, but at the same time, they needed increase that being endowed with a larger measure of the Spirit and being more and more enlightened, they might more clearly and fully hold their present views. The knowledge of God, the godly is never so pure, but that some dimness or obscurity hangs over their spiritual vision. So as a good pastor, he says, I want you to grow in sanctification and thus have your assurance grow. I want you to feel more content. I want you to feel more blessed. I want you to be a people who are living in great expectation of all that is to come with your eyes firmly fixed on heaven, not merely upon the world, so that the events of this present darkness can't shake you because you know that the light is about to break in the east when Christ returns and then nothing will stop his kingdom from being realized. Now, I want to make a couple of, well, just one application really here. In the word of God, the heart is a very important thing. Now, we view the heart as the seat of the emotions, um, but it's not merely the seat of the emotions in the word. Uh, word. The, in the word, the heart is the core of life. It's the fountain of thoughts. It's where your innermost being is to be found. Uh, and if the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, then your eyes should be clear. You should be filled with light. And that light should be increasing. The process of sanctification should give you clearer and clearer vision, greater and greater assurance as you go on. More and more contentment. Now, does this mean you're never going to deal with melancholy? No. I mean, the greatest of saints dealt with, with depression at times. 
dealt with a, a feeling of, am I doing, I, I mean, there are mornings where I wake up and I say to myself, am I doing any good in this world? Have I done anybody any good in this world? I honestly, I, I struggle with those things on a regular basis. I wake up in the morning and I feel not like a, oh, not like a saint, but more like a worm. And I, 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 sometimes I'm tempted to despair, but then I remember. I remember who I am in Christ. I remember where I'm going. I remember what Christ has done for me. I remember who I am in him. I begin to, to, to dwell on the nature of the new creation. I remember where I was when God found me and how he has been working in me. And I pray that that is happening in your lives as well that you are growing in grace, you're growing in understanding, and you're growing in your spiritual vision. Because there is a huge difference, and this is something that we need to remember, there is a huge difference between the ability of the unbeliever to understand the things of God and the ability of the saint. If you're an unbeliever, you can't understand the things of God. The, the Bible makes that very clear. I want to show you that to you a little later on in this particular book, Ephesians 4.17. This I say, therefore... And testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. If you have the spirit within you, a light has dawned. Dawn has broken in your heart. You now understand the word, and as a result, a change is occurring within you. You're more and more a child of the light, more and more a child of truth. And how do we encourage that? By putting off the things of this present evil age, moving away from, from the lewdness and the lusts and all of the things that the world thinks are so very important that captivate them, the, the pleasures, the deceits, the honors, all of the things of Vanity Fair that make up life in this world and instead we occupy our time and attention with the reading of the word and the listening to the word and we're constantly actively engaged with the means of grace. And therefore, the light within us grows. And as we become more honestly, and this is not a bad word in its proper usage, as we become more honestly enlightened, we are able to be light to other people. We are able to, to help them, to stir them up, to show them the right way, to be an example. Do you think of yourself as that? You're supposed to be an example, brothers and sisters, to those who are coming along behind you. You are supposed to be exhorting them you're supposed to be cheering them on. You're supposed to be giving them helpful advice. One of, the, one of the greatest things that God did for me when I was a young man, and I really, you know, I, I barely understood which end of the Bible was up, was he set before me a series of Christian mentors, godly men, who, although they were men with feet of clay and the best of men are men at best, these were men who were way further on. And they were able to help me. They were able to explain things. They were able to pray with me. 
They were able to admonish me. They were able to tell me when I was being an idiot and show me the right way. And I learned that though, you know, first uh, it would sting when they said, what you're doing now is not right. Um, I gradually, I learned, you know, they do have greater wisdom than me and I need to listen to them. By their light, I gained light, but it was the same Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And I was able to move a little further along in my Christian walk because they had stopped and turned back and said, come walk with me, brother, and helped me along. That should be you in not just what you do for other people, in your family, certainly, with your spouse, certainly, with your children, always encouraging them and exhorting them and and teaching them, but with every member of the church. Not in an overbearing or a, you know, a lording it over you kind of way, but just in the, can I help you kind of way, reaching out. And I pray that that would be the spirit that's within us, that we would be praying for greater light, that we would be praying for greater understanding, that we would be praying for the spirit to do his work in all of us and remembering those things, never forgetting our inheritance. Never forget the glory that is to be revealed within not just you, but us together. What is in store for us, we go on. And that will be a glorious day, won't it, when we stand with all the rest of the saints, the people from Uganda and Kenya and, and all throughout Asia and the United States and South America who have been called in every time and age and place. And we worship the Lord Jesus Christ together face to face. That's what's coming. So what do we have to despair over ultimately? Yeah, this world's a mess. It was a mess before we got here. And until Jesus returns, it's going to stay a mess. But don't let it get you down. Don't let it cause you to despair. Remember, it's a mess that is going to be changed, renewed, cleaned up in a way that no man can do. That's what Christ will do when he renews the heavens and the earth when everything is made new again. And never forget you're part of that new creation. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we thank you for the the amazing news of the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. You are the one who united us to him. You're the one who's doing that changing work in us. Help us, though, to be involved in all of this, to be helping our brothers and sisters, praying for them, reaching out to them, walking with them, doing everything that we can. Help us, O Lord, to be people who exhort, who admonish, who who give good advice, good counsel in due season, and who don't compromise. Let us love the souls of our brethren so much that we're not willing to let them live in lies and delusion. O Lord, help us to help one another and always to remember that everything that we have has come through the completed work of Jesus.